0: Hello and welcome to Bootstrap, the podcast for software bootstrappers. If you are running a software company or looking to start one, then this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Steve McLeod. The following message is brought to you by Balsamic. Balsamic have decided to support the bootstrap community by donating their sponsored airtime to some of our listeners. Today's guest sponsor is Mockless. When you build a new backend server, how do you document its requirements, data model and specific behaviours? With Mockless. Product owners can create a fully functional mock version of their backend in minutes. This gives developers a clear understanding of how the API should be implemented, reduces refactoring time, and lets the front-end team work while the server is being developed. Mockless will even generate appropriate mock data automatically for you. Sign up now at mockless.com. That's m-o-c-k-l-e-s-s.com. If you'd like to have your startup advertised on this podcast for free, courtesy of Balsamic, or receive a promo code for Balsamic, or even just thank the folks at Balsamic for supporting our community, visit balsamic.com slash go slash bootstrapped. That's a Balsamic with a Q. Balsamic.com slash go slash bootstrapped. With me today is Ed Freifogel. In fact, Ed will be joining me for the next few episodes as my new short-term co-host. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Tell us about yourself and your bootstrapping credentials.
1: Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Like you, I live here in Barcelona, although like you, I'm also not originally from Barcelona. Um, In terms of bootstrapping credentials, I'm the co-founder of a startup that's called OpenCage, and we provide an API for geocoding. Um, so our customers are software developers and people like that who want to use this API to um, convert addresses into coordinates or other types of location data or vice versa. Yeah, so I do that with one partner. He is based in Germany, and we've been doing that now for about four years. That business originally was a piece of another business that I had, which was much more of a kind of traditional kind of funded startup so, that I had for about 10 years in London. The prior business, we went the more traditional route of kind of raising funding and had an institutional investor, uh, grew that business for about 10 years, and then eventually sold it. So I had some experience on that side of things as well. And when we sold, the, the piece that eventually became OpenCage, the buyer wasn't interested in it. So my partner and I, we took that on and I've been running it ever since. I guess some, a little more background about me is I can kind of date myself by telling you that I started my career working uh, for an internet company called Yahoo, if anyone remembers that one.
0: <laughs> wait are we talking the internet zero uh 1.0 it, it
1: was back in the day man we used to put out the internet on paper every day no it was about about oh, 20 was... years ago so and i was a, a software developer there and so that was kind of how i started my career and uh these days my, my my partner is more the the cto and more heads up more the technical side of things and I, I focus on a bit of everything else um although still dabble a bit on the technical side of things but
0: that's a great summary. I think I hear a topic for another episode there comparing what it was like going through the funded r- route in uh, with your business in London versus what you're doing this time around. Uh, there must be a lot to hear about that. And I think if we go down that path now, we won't get to talk about anything else. So it could be in a week or two.
1: Yeah, happy to talk about that. Actually, I still have a lot of Kind of insights into that world because um, besides running my bootstrap business, I do, I do three other things as well. Um, so first of all, I have two kids. Um, and, and one of the big reasons to um, to have a bootstrap business is because it lets me, of course, structure my life in a very flexibly and spend a lot of time with my kids. But in terms of more professional things that I work on, I also work with many startups, usually in the form of as, a, as an angel investor. And so many of them are on the more traditional kind of VC path. And so I, I still have a lot of insights there and on how that world kind of works. And then I guess the final thing is they also run an event or a series of events, which is kind of a, a meetup for location-based service developers. They do that originally in London and now also in a couple other cities. Um, and that's kind Including of a, here in Barcelona. Including here in Barcelona.
0: Yeah. yeah. So. Hey, why did you pick Barcelona? It sounds like you had the freedom to live in many places. Why Barcelona?
1: Uh, Well, we had lived in London for about 10 years, and London is absolutely fantastic when you're kind of young and single or a couple and going out and uh, enjoying the city. London is fairly difficult when you have kids. And so, so we had kids and we, we were looking for a, a better quality of life. And so it was time to leave London. I had also sold my company. So, but to Barcelona specifically, obviously it's a great city, a great quality of life. But the re- main reason we came here specifically is because my wife got a job here. So.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. That's uh, So she's uh, working here in Barcelona still, and you're running the Startup, uh, the bootstrap startup here in Barcelona.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, although from a technical point of view, my, my company is not a Spanish company; we're a German company. So yeah,
0: you changed that recently, uh, if I remember from a conversation we had. It was an English company.
1: Yeah, originally because we started it when we were living in London, and the easiest thing to do at that time was set up a, a UK company, very straightforward. Uh, but. Because of Brexit, over the last year, we, we had to move the company um, to Germany specifically because my, my colleague is based there. The reason was um, potential customers and customers were asking us they have to send us data. So you send us addresses or coordinates, and we convert them for you. Um, And so some of the EU customers with GDPR and things were starting to ask, well, will we still be able to work with you after um, Britain's no longer in the EU? And it was causing a lot of uncertainty. And so basically we thought the easiest thing to do is move. And so over the last six months, that was kind of a big project for the business, moving, changing our legal structure. So not a fun project, but I'm glad we did it
0: sounds like one of those things you have to do to keep your business going that actually isn't really moving the business forward. Like, for example, recently having to update to the new um, payment regulations in, in Europe. Yeah, exactly. But if you don't do these things, your business dies or, or suffers.
1: Yeah, we could, we could see that particularly some of our bigger customers were nervous about it. And, and the existing customers, you know, I have a dialogue with them and I could kind of explain things. And I, I felt... You know, I felt confident we could kind of convince them. But the bigger question was how many potential customers are we losing? You take a look at our company and then they're just like, oh, well, they're not in the EU. I can't work with them. So. um, Yeah.
0: Uncertainty is a killer. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. We keep getting customers signing up from the United Kingdom. And it kind of surprises me that it hasn't dropped really as a percentage of our business. Because I think if I was in the UK and trying to make a, Decision going on into the future, I would, I would find it hard. That maybe reflects more on my personality. I tend to really want to understand things before I make a decision.
1: Well, I guess but, it depends on yeah. you know what is the cost and what are the alternatives and all those kind of things. I mean, right. I guess you know how much does your product cost? You know.
0: Yeah, sorry, no, it's not, it not is, that big uh,
1: an investment.
0: You know what I mean? No, but, it's not. It's not. So the company you're running now, OpenCage Data, the customers sound like the developers. That's that's right. And that's a brave move, Ed. From everything I've heard, it's not much fun selling to developers. Or have I heard wrong?
1: Well, we do we do have fun. It's not always fun. It's it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I mean, there's a definitely a knack to selling. I, I wouldn't say you can it's difficult to actively sell to developers. Um, on the other hand, as I said, my own background was a software developer and, and my my partner as well. And so, you know, in that regard, we're kind of solving a problem that we ourselves had so we can relate with the target audience. But definitely, there are some unique challenges around it. Yes.
0: Which is also a uh, uh, interesting topic for another week.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think we're, so. We're
0: uh, already laying ourselves out a, a plan for the next weeks here, and we we're only a few minutes into this episode. Hey, let's talk about Barcelona briefly. Well, we talked about why you you moved here. So, how do you find it for the as a a startup or a bootstrapping scene? Do you find it? well, Clearly, it's not going to be London because London is like the place in Europe, if I understand. But uh, in general, what has been your thoughts about the bootstrapping scene in Barcelona?
1: Well, there is increasingly a thriving tech scene here in Barcelona, but the bootstrapping scene, I think, is much smaller. I'm not sure why that is. We, one thing that's great about Barcelona is we get a lot of visitors, but, tourists in general, but also a lot of conferences and things. So, And a lot of people pass through Barcelona. I think MicroComp was held here a couple of years ago. Uh, I wasn't actually able to attend that one, but... So we get a lot of people coming, and and also we get the kind of digital nomad community. There are people coming through. There are tons and tons of co-working spaces here in Barcelona, but the actual local bootstrapping scene is actually quite small that that I'm aware of. It could also be that uh, some people are kind of you know just heads down doing their own thing and not making a lot of noise. And um, you know you always come across people who just have amazing businesses that you would never know about, but. You know, so over the last year, you and I and, and a couple others, we've started kind of a lunch of, of people in the bootstrap scene that we, we meet every couple months. And uh, I'm looking forward to in a couple weeks, we're going to have our kind of Christmas dinner, which should be fun. I think it's very useful to get a local community going. And we, when I think back about comparing it with my time in London, where I had a, a company with about 20 employees, and, and I think of all the memories there, that what stands out are kind of those events, like, you know, the Christmas parties and the summer party and stuff like that. And that's one thing you definitely miss when when you're a small, remotely distributed team. So it's very important to try to create ways to... to recreate those kind of experience or find substitutes for those experiences so yeah anyone who's listening who's here in barcelona please get in touch let's let's try to get it going i know there are a couple meetups there's kind of a, an indie hacker meetup i think which unfortunately i haven't just due to scheduling issues i haven't been able to make it to that one yet but i would like it to, if we if we can get a bit more of the scene uh, together and hanging out and I, I think it's very useful to learn from each other
0: Yeah, my experience of uh, going to various meetups here in Barcelona is there's a lot of people talking about what they'd like to do with starting the bootstrapped business, but not so many people are brave enough to do it. And I actually struggled to find a place to meet people actually doing it, which is why I really appreciate these lunches we are having once every couple of months. Now, just to know that there's other people who understand what you're doing when you only half explain it. Or understand a problem when you half explain it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but when people yeah. haven't run a business, they really never quite understand the problems you're having. But when someone's been doing it, they they get it straight away. And just knowing that someone understands is a, is a nice thing.
1: Yeah, very true. And I think I think this is also one challenge in the bootstrapper community in general. I, you know, I just went to uh, Microcomp Europe a couple of weeks ago. On the one hand, you get the people who are doing it, who are at a certain stage, and, and then you get the people who are kind of aspiring to join or, you know, the people who are working part time and thinking about quitting their job and getting going. And, and that's great. You know, the only way you, you need both groups, but it's a, it's a challenge because the people, the, the, those two groups face very, very different problems and they're at different points on their journey. And so to a degree, it's kind of, they're kind of a little bit talking past each other. Uh, or it's very difficult to get, get yeah. con- to create content, or 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 to have a discussion that's helpful and useful for both groups. I think, um, which I you know, MicroConf in the U.S. now they have the starter edition, and then they also have the growth edition, which I think is a good good way to do it. And uh, yeah,
0: that's. That's actually brilliant segmentation, I have to say. So you you, you self select to be with which group of people you want to be with. I understand the price is very similar to both events, and for the real junkies, they can go to both events because they're held back to back.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 It does actually, make it a challenge, though. That everyone everyone's kind of at their own point in the journey, and so it, yeah. it's it cannot always be easy to have a
0: fruitful dialogue. Yeah, I definitely something I agree with there. Hey, Ed, something I wanted to to talk about on today's episode in detail is pricing and specifically what I can learn for feature upvotes pricing from what you've been doing. This ties back to, I think it was the first time I met you, would that have been MicroConf in Lisbon 2017?
1: Yeah, two years ago, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's when I first met you and you gave a talk there about various things, but one of the things I took away from it was, the importance of offering pricing in the currency your customers are using. Right. Have I got that right? Yes. Is yes, my memory yes. getting a bit hazy? No,
1: no. You got that absolutely right. So we, at our business, you know, I can I can speak only of, of the experience that we've had, but we have a very international customer base. Customer base. Our, our customers are literally all over the world. Um, and one of the things that we do is we do offer pricing, not in every single currency, but in about I think about ten different currencies. And kind of targeted, obviously, so that when you land on our pricing page, based on your IP address, we look at which which country you're in and thus switch the currency to to default to that currency so that you can see the price in your in your local currency. Um, And we we do that for a couple of reasons. Um, And I'm always I have to say I'm heavily uh, very surprised that more people don't do this, which was kind of the one of the premises of my talk in that, you know. We make this whole big case that in bootstrapping, what you should do, when, especially when you're starting, is you should niche down. You should get to a, a very specific group of customers, and that way you can tailor your, you know, all your marketing materials and and so that when someone lands on your page, they, you know, they start reading through your page and they're like, oh my god, this is exactly for me. This is this guy understands my problem. This product is going to solve all my problems. And you know, then they've gotten to the bottom and they say, okay, I'm ready to buy it. And then they click on buy, and all of a sudden, then you know, you show them the price in dollars and, and, you know, this is yeah. for someone who's not known. And then you're like, well, you know, maybe that maybe it's not really for me because I don't use dollars, you know, maybe yeah. like why go through all the effort of convincing the guy that you're the solution to his problem. And then at the end say, well, we don't really mean you, you know? So yeah, frankly, it's, this is not a technically difficult thing to do. It's, it's trivial. I mean, we use Stripe for our payment processing, but I'm sure it's this case with all major payment processors that you can easily bill people in euro, in uh, pounds, in Australian dollars, whatever it is. You know, um, so as I said, we don't do we don't do yeah you, know, you know there's 250 different currencies around the world. We don't we don't do all of them. We do. 10 big ones. Um, so
0: so why, how did you pick those 10? Like Polish Zloty, I'm pretty sure that's not one of the world's 10 big currencies. Yeah, you're, you're, Swedish Krona.
1: You're right, but those, that's based on where our customers come from. So we, we kind of saw we were getting customers from those markets or, or getting uh, sign-ups and, and, and people testing in those markets. And so, you know, then then we just added them. So And, and it actually really, it really works in that very often – you have several countries that are very used to not getting the pricing in their currency. So Canada, you know, Canadians always you mm-hmm. know, have to buy things in U.S. dollars or um, Swiss francs here in Europe, you know, the, obviously they're very used to purchasing things in euro. But then when you, they do get the chance to purchase, they see that it's in their currency. You know, we have we have several Canadian customers and I don't think a single one of them has become a customer without commenting on the fact that they're like, oh, this is cool that I can pay in Canadian dollars. You know, yeah. it's, it's a very yeah. simple way to kind of create that delight or joy, you know, kind of that aha moment of like, oh, you know, this guy is actually trying to serve me, you know, this okay. is so.
0: Um, for the listeners, uh, I'm currently looking at uh, the OpenCage data pricing page and although it's automatically detected I'm in the Euro zone and it's showing me prices in Euro, there's a dropdown in which I can pick any of the other 10 one two three. It looks like you've got twelve different currencies, or if I miscounted. I, I don't, I don't and, uh, know the exact uh, number,
1: but but yeah, roughly ten or
0: so. So I can actually choose which one I want. I'm not locked into the one that it detected by default.
1: No, you're not locked in. Uh, so that being said. F- I'm not really aware of any cases where people choose not to pay in their own currency. That's pretty rare, I mm. guess. I mean, like you know, we offer Brazilian real. I don't. I don't think you're going to want to pay in Brazilian real.
0: But <laughs> no, not today. Hey, a year or two ago, I was visiting my family in New Zealand, and this story is going somewhere and is connected. Yeah, it was time for me to renew a yearly subscription for Parallels Desktop, the Mac virtual machine okay. software, mm-hmm. and it. Used geolocation and detected I was in New Zealand. So it showed me the process in New Zealand dollars and I could not change it. Furthermore, they picked an exchange rate that had a 30% premium on top of the actual exchange rate. And like I was fuming. I needed to buy the product because I needed to use it that day and I couldn't wait till I left the country in some weeks' time. And what I'm getting at here is I like that you're allowing people to, to pick the euro. The currency they want and not one based on where they happen to be in the world at that particular moment.
1: Right, right. Yeah, well, you do have situations where sometimes you'll have a company that's like, you know, that the guy who's purchasing is in, I don't know, in France, but it's a US company, so he wants to be billed in dollars or whatever. Very occasionally that kind of thing comes up. But the vast majority of people do, you know, select, they go with the default currency that which is based on their, their location so but but yeah in in the in the situation where they need to tweak it they can tweak it there's another reason to do it is that what we found some markets you know so for example brazil for whatever reason we have a, some customers in brazil and the frequency that a purchase goes through is higher if it's in brazilian real like some people have kind of you know their credit cards has various fraud anti-fraud measures or whatever mm-hmm. and if they try to purchase in dollars like that's flagged up as being a, a fraudulent transaction versus a purchase in their local currency or something, things like that. So in that regard it can also make it a bit simpler as well. But but that wasn't really the motivating factor for us. The motivating factor was just, you know, as with all aspects of of running a SaaS service, it's like, you know, what do my customers want? Customers don't want the the uncertainty of, you know, it, paying in a different currency. They want to pay in their currency. Yeah. So,
0: so- I'm going to tell you what we're proposing to do and I'm going to then ask you some questions that my team had for me. Hopefully you have some insight into them. Sure. So so currently we charge uh, $35 per month per feedback board or okay. $29 per month if you pay annually, you know, the 20% discount. I think you gotcha. also do the, the discount if you pay yeah, yearly, no, same, right? Same yeah. thing, yeah,
1: you get two months free if you pay yearly.
0: Yeah, our initial price was uh $29 of paying yearly $25 of paying monthly and we put it up so do, $29 do, of paying just,
1: yeah so we do like our, our price in dollars is 50 per month or 500 per year so okay, te, you okay, pay so for 10 months if you pay annually
0: yeah I like that so yeah we initially were $29 per month and then at the beginning of this year we put it up 20% to $35 per month not a person commented on it it mm-hmm. didn't change our, our conversion rate at all but it just gave us higher uh, increase to revenue. And, of course, we left our existing customers on the, uh, on the old plan, the so-called grandfathering. Mm-hmm. So what we're proposing doing is a big raise for our new customers starting in January. We're going to put up our price to $49, $49 US dollars a month. So that's about a 50% increase. And then, again, the 20% discount if they pay yearly. But we're also thinking of adding a two-yearly price. Okay. For for those people who really want to save money, we can say or want a discount. One of the things we can say to them is, well, why don't you pay for two years in advance? And then it's $29 still. Yeah. Okay. And then we're also going to add euro and British pounds pricing. I just picked some numbers. I typed into Google $49, $49 US dollars in euros and what the amount was. I rounded it off and that became a euro price. And yeah. then we have the same thing. And then British pounds. How does that sound to you as a pricing scheme?
1: So first of all, for, for picking the price and the alternate currencies, we did basically the same thing. So yeah, you know, figure out whatever whatever $49 is in euro. I don't know off the top of my head how much is that. 44 is the number uh, I wrote down so, on the piece of paper yeah, in front so, of me. And then you might want to round it. So I don't know, you know, 44, maybe you make it 45 instead or, or whatever. Um so, but that's exactly how we did it, with a few exceptions. Um, so we do have some markets where uh, customers are very price sensitive, and so there we might, you know, make it a bit cheaper for them. Um, oh, okay. So that's one benefit of having different currencies is that people don't. It's hard for people to compare. You know, if I ask you, you know, is our price in Polish Zloty cheaper or more expensive than our price in Australian dollars? You know. <laughs> It's unlikely that you can, in your head, do, you know, not many people can do that comparison. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's one way you can kind of segment a bit if you, if you have customers in different countries and one country is more price sensitive than another or so. But then, yeah, we basically just convert and pick, you know, a, a nice round number and you know go with that and that's exactly how we did it so i guess my only question would be um i mean you know your user base so um maybe euro and british pound are the currencies that make sense but if you're going to do two why not do why not do a couple more as well like australian dollars canadian dollars you know, it depends. If you don't have any users in those markets and you've never had requests from those markets or you don't have any people testing in those markets, fine, maybe maybe you don't need to do we it. We
0: actually do have uh, a few customers in both Australia and in Canada. Another one I have been toying with is Swiss francs, but I was thinking this is too many currencies. But now I look at what you've done with your 10 or so currencies. <laughs> yeah, what? You, yeah. You,
1: you have all the work anyway. I mean, the jump is yeah. between one and... Going from 1 to 2 is is a big jump. Going from 1 to 10, you know, I guess the issue is you don't want to, like, what we don't do is have 200. Like, I don't want people to have to, you know, scroll through a huge long list. And so we just pick kind of the 10 biggest ones. But for example, like, we don't have Japanese yen and that's because we, we don't have, you know, it's a big economy and a big currency, but we don't have any customers from Japan. We've never had requests from Japan. Um, but you know, if someone if someone wrote to me, particularly if it was a bigger client and they were like, "I want to pay in Japanese yen," you know, fine. You know, for us, you know, the the thing with SaaS is it really compounds. The, the power of the subscription model is it compounds, right? And you don't. It's not about getting money from someone one time and the, making it back in the first month. It's about getting them on a subscription, getting them to use the product, depend on the product, and stay a satisfied customer for a long, long time. So anything i can do that makes it simpler to get that guy in and get him to start using the the product and having a good experience and enjoying my brand i should do it right yeah, yeah. and and it will it will you know maybe that means i you know if i pay, if i charge him in his local currency maybe it's 5% cheaper but fine it's it's more about yeah. getting him in
0: yeah so. it's really i think in a SaaS business it's not worth like doing too much work trying to worry about one percent here and three percent there. Is, exactly. Yeah, it's just not worth it. Our profit margins are insane, really insane. All the well, cost is up front. And then yeah.
1: Yeah. So so one question that often comes up, particularly over the last couple of years with Brexit and and the pound fluctuating all over the place. People ask like, oh well what do you you know, do you change do you readjust the conversions every month or something? Like, no. We just you know basically currencies don't major currencies don't fluctuate that much. And even with things like Brexit, I mean, it's been plus or minus 10%, right? So, you know, we've just kept it. And, you know, because we have 10 different currencies, you know, sometimes some go up and some go down and it kind of balances out. There is, however, one thing you need to be aware of
0: uh, that has come
1: up as a problem. And that is with, I I assume for your billing, you use Stripe. I do. Okay. So Stripe will not let you change a customer's currency.
0: Oh, you, Once you have
1: built someone, once you have built someone in current in dollars, you will ha- the only way to you will have to re-enter them as a new customer. So you have to get them. If so, imagine you have your Australian customers who are happily who are currently paying you in US dollars, and they mm-hmm. see that you launch multiple currencies, and they say, "Hey, that's great. We now also want to pay in Australian dollars." You cannot. There's no way you can do that for them. They have to re-enter their payment information. You have to recapture their payment information and create get them as a new customer. Okay, new this Stripe.
0: sounds painful, but I like it's, that I can say, "Look, it's <laughs> not our problem. It's Stripe's fault." We wish this wasn't the case, but we'll help you change over. I really like yeah. being able to blame somebody else for so, <laughs> things like that.
1: Well, the question in that case is, does your customer <laughs> <Yeah. care? laughs> right? <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> they, they still like you know when you purchase something, you don't really care. About their the, the, that company's back office issues, you just want your problem solved. So,
0: so, so you've actually been doing a pretty good job of looking th- without realizing it, going through the list of questions I have and answering them in advance. For example, one of the ones that one of my team members raised was, "What do we do when currencies shift?" And she happens to be in England, so it, I think it's become a, become a national obsession in the whole United Kingdom at the moment sure. of watching the the pound yo yo. But you said it's only been like a ten percent change overall, which is actually not as much as the newspapers would think it was. They use words like plummeting and soaring and to describe small changes.
1: Well, a couple percent is a big difference if you're, you know, if you're manufacturing physical goods and you have to, uh, you know, imagine you're a, a producer in the UK and you have to purchase things from China or whatever and get them imported, and you know, it can make a big difference in a traditional low-margin business. But in our case. In SaaS, I don't—it's not relevant. And you know what we've done because we've not done this for a couple of years. You know now we have our—we have customers all over the world. So, um, from our perspective, yes, it's some some currencies are going down, but it's kind of balanced out by others going up, um, and it, and it all kind of balances out. And it, it's much more important just how do I grow my overall number of customers, um, and how do I keep those customers happy so that they don't churn out and then it all just flows in i mean one way you can think about it is uh, do you do any kind of coupons or discount codes or affiliate fees or whatever you know if someone showed up and they said oh i'll bring you a new customer and in exchange i want uh you know five percent affiliate fee you would yeah. say of course yeah i'll take that right away so you know i think charging in other currencies it's you know you may have a fluctuation of five percent or whatever but you get the new customer. Yeah, your conversion rate should increase.
0: What about content uh, when you're marketing your product? Do you mention pricing? And if so, how do you get away deal with the fact that you have to say it's fifty dollars per month? Unless you're in another currency, in which case it's right. or is, that, is that something you, uh, you encounter? <laughs>
1: less well sometimes i have done when i've gone to events or things like that where i'm doing kind of face-to-face marketing then of course i kind of tailor my message to be whatever the the currency is in that geography in terms of our online marketing we don't quote the actual price there we, we would just kind of say it's affordable you know and then kind of link to the pricing page um, uh, not not i mean just also because you know in an AdWord or something like that, like you don't have enough space to get into the details because it depends what package are they purchasing or whatever. Um, So no, I just kind of linked to the pricing page and then they can. But you do make a good point that I think one thing I've kind of learned over the years is pricing is definitely part of the product experience. And I think many... SaaS businesses neglect this. And and I think particularly, I have to say now, as someone living in Europe um, and running a business and being a customer of, of many SaaS services, particularly U.S. businesses, I think, are not great at this, right? Like, you know, like unable to produce a VAT invoice and things like that.
0: And oh, my this, God. This, this oh, sounds like a pain. small
1: thing, but it's a huge deal, right? Like if if, yeah. if if I'm your customer and you send me a bad invoice and then I have stress with my accountant about it, Guess what? Like I'm, that leaves me with a very bad taste in, in about your product. Um, yeah, and,
0: and it doesn't take much to do something about it. American companies.
1: No, it really doesn't. And and it let us put the in the our company open. name,
0: yeah. a company tax number, a company address. That's it. That's all we really need.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, it's really something that people overlook in terms of. Well, for us, for example, when we are – our customers are typically bigger companies and we have multiple different stakeholders that we need to keep happy there. One is the, the software developer who actually uses the service, but others are the the accounting guy or whatever. And you really need to keep all of them happy, particularly if it's easy things to do like
0: this. Yeah. Um, so. If this is know. time for a call out to Quaderno, I think, who I, I – do you use Quaderno to make your invoices?
1: We, we do use we do use Quaderno, and we've used Quaderno for several years now, and um, I can I can gladly recommend their service. It's it's great. Likewise, it's great.
0: Yeah, we get uh, some companies or some would be companies right, and say if we sign up, can you give us invoices that meet the requirements of Norway or whatever country? And I can very very easily say yes. We know that to be the case, and that's because Quaderno generates our invoices for us yeah
1: but i i even mean little i mean this is going to be kind of like a very pedantic but a lot of companies so for example stripe okay i every month i get their billing report uh, or like you know how much uh, how much they charge us and i need to submit that to my accountant and the file name is stripe you know like they, they get so the first thing i have to do is download that rename it to have a timestamp in it you know i have to put like stripe you know november Pdf, and it's just like i'm it, it, i one of my tasks for for um the coming month is trying to figure out look you create some kind of zapier or something to like try to solve this but it's just like guys come on like uh, yeah. yeah. the analogy I always use is like you know if if we're playing soccer or football I mean pass me the ball so that I can play it like don't make me have to do extra work uh, 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 like that's just busy work that's just absolute busy yeah. work and you're just like come yeah. on
0: so it's one of those pointless things you have to do but gets you nowhere in the business exactly
1: exactly it's just it tedious it
0: surprises me Stripe usually does a good job of like getting the details right and it does sound like the the Messed up a bit there.
1: Well, I just I don't know. It's it's the example of are you are you solving your own problem? Like, are you actually your customer? And I think in some yeah. way Stripe has grown so big that they're no longer the people working there are perhaps no longer actually able to put themselves in the shoes of the customer. Mm. In some in some respect. have you noticed
0: that Stripe has moved away from their long time marketing position? They used to be like payment processing for developers. They all they focused on, on was making sure that it was a great experience for developers. But if you go to their homepage now, they've completely rebranded. You can see they're aiming for a much higher level.
1: No, I, I, yeah. I haven't noticed that, but I guess it's understandable because you know they kind of maxed out the developer market, or or they already have, they're already very well known in that market and things like that. So. To be fair, we have, we're a Stripe customer and it works really well and, and it makes my business much easier. So obviously, I'm, as I said, these are very pedantic complaints, but still, Stripe is just one example of many. I think I think the key learning for the audience here is payment is. The, the the entire process around payment is part of your product and part of the experience that your customers yeah. go through. So yeah. you should you should the same way you think through onboarding, the same way you think through the features of your product, you should think through payment and be like, how do I provide my customers with a good experience? And actually, again, another shout out to Quaderno. About two years ago or so I think I said this is like guys, can we why don't we change the file name of the invoices so that it better reflects you know what the what the charge was and who the charge came from, and that way it's it's just we it reduce that step, and and they they then quickly made that change.
0: So you're responsible for that. Thank you. I, I, I you know. <laughs> Any
1: anyone who would like to buy me a beer to, to say <laughs> thanks can.
0: We've we've so. made a couple of suggestions to Gordon over the years, and it's been impressive how quickly they've acted on them.
1: Yes, I agree. We I mm-hmm. often send them suggestions because I know that they'll act on it, and it is yeah. very impressive.
0: So here's a little trick I do to um, make sure that my billing is working well from the customer's point of view. I subscribe to my own product. <laughs> In fact, the very first feature upvote customer was me basically just testing the payment process but then i decided to just keep going through it i mean the money comes back to me anyway minus whatever the government decides they want but that way i get to see if there's any problems with our, with the formatting or the the email's not getting delivered or just those little rough corners that you don't ever get around to correcting if you're not seeing the problem
1: you know what that's a good, that's a very good idea actually That's a a very good, I I, I have done that myself, like when we make changes to the billing, I I have purchased it myself, but I don't have an ongoing subscription, but probably I should. You're right. It's probably worth it. So.
0: Ed, I think that's all we have time for today. So I want to thank you for being on the show and I'm looking forward to the next few episodes with you as my co-host. So we can hear more about some of those things we touched on today
1: the pleasure was all mine. It's, it's, it's great. I I mean, it's really cool that, uh, you took the podcast over and I've gotten it going and I think it's, um, useful for everyone, but also of course, great here for the Barcelona scene. So look forward to keep going.
0: Listeners. If you'd like to discuss more about today's topics, please go to our forum at bootstrapped.fm and join the conversation. Bye Ed. Bye. See you everybody. That concludes this episode of bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm. Until next episode, goodbye.